Welcome to Season 3 of The Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. As two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I'm Tim Curtis with my co-host, Ben Pronk. And we're into RV 26. 26, where we're going to talk about our episodes with Simon Eastor, assistant coach at the Fremantle Footy Club, uh, Rear Admiral Lee Goddard, mm-hmm. and his transition from uniform into resilience. Mindaroo. That's very good. Into his resilience work with the Mindaroo Foundation. And then Mark Billy Billingham. And we're also going to reflect on a few current affairs, a couple of bits of listener feedback, and a special audio clip that's pretty close to both of our hearts. Absolutely. Let's get on with the show. Starting with Simon Eastor, assistant coach at the Dockers, former professional footballer and previously an assistant coach at the West Coast Eagles. A good chat with Simon talking all things high performance and elite sporting team. What do you reckon, what sort of image do you give across as a host of a podcast talking about high performance, precision, elite organisations and rocking up late to the podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you reckon that that <laughs> conveys? Huffing and puffing and sweating as oh, Simon standing here, <laughs> That's right. waiting for you. Yep, yep. From my twenty metre sprint from the the train station to here, um, Simon was a champion. Very gracious, and I've got a little litmus test mm. that the the quicker someone starts giving you a hard time, the the better a person they are. And he was straight into me. Didn't know me from Adam and yeah. was, was straight in sinking the boot, which which I really appreciate. Arguably good. the better the episode is too on occasions. Um, you know, he, and having said that, let's not forget, we've just come off the back of the Derby weekend yes. where you've got to say after 11 years, that was probably Frio's best chance. Uh, the Eagles coming off a, a absolute caning and and um, the Dockers having had a really good start to the season. But yeah, it didn't, didn't work out so well for the um, the Fremantle Football Club. No, I had a wonderful interchange with um, Simon Eastor leading up to the game and on game day even. And uh, those who have been uh, following the AFL will know that the game was played at Optus Stadium, but because of COVID restrictions, there were no spectators. And so my running joke with Simon Eastor was Fremantle were likely to play nearly as the home team, even though they weren't, because they're very used to not playing in front of spectators. He was not very amused, nor was he amused at the percentage boost that the Fremantle Dockers gave the West Coast Eagles as mm. the Eagles ran over the top of the Dockers in the third, fourth quarter. But I think, you know, football rivalries aside, I particularly enjoyed the the broader applications of the conversation we had with Simon. You know, clearly we were talking about elite professional sport, but I thought his own journey and dealing with disappointment, yeah. dealing with injury, keeping going through that sort of ambiguous stage after he was drafted I thought that was fascinating and really I think could resonate with a lot of people who Mm. are dealing with any form of setback yeah exactly I mean you know he was drafted into Richmond at the age of 16 and never actually played a game 
he was injured, got to the point where he was kind of too scared to run too fast in case he blew something out again. <laughs> Which is exactly the point I'm at <laughs> at the moment. <laughs> but, but not, not as, as a 16-year-old. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, I think the other fascinating thing is that, you know, in the year 2021, our young hopeful draftees, they're put up on a pedestal. It's this really big mm. event where we have live television of the draft. You know, rewind, actually not too long ago, Simon Eastor as a 16-year-old found out he'd been drafted because he picked up the newspaper and read about it on the back page. He got a, a telegram. <laughs> <laughs> drafted Facsimile. stop for Richmond. <laughs> um, but to your point, what and, and one of Simon's role is dealing with the, the Fremantle Development Squad and what an awesome role model in that capacity. Um, just as a human being, he's, he's mm. clearly a really engaging, charismatic inspiring sort of person, but also someone who's been there and done that and dealt with the trials and tribulations and the reality that, you know, out of a hundred young kids who are going for a spot, there's only going to be a couple that are going to get it. Well, comment on this from the perspective of resilience, General General. The motto of his department is, quote, more than footy, unquote. We spoke with Pete Nazchek about that tension between generalists and specialists and elite organisations have to be specialists. If you're training for a football team or a military organisation or the Olympics or the higher echelons of business, whatever it is, you do need to specialise, but it comes at the detriment of that wider global resilience. You know, you are probably trading something off. And that idea that uh, by not letting go of those other aspects, by actively keeping them alive, not only do you provide yourself more global resilience as a, as a human being, but you also probably get better at the thing you're training for. It's that David Epstein range sort of concept yeah. that, you know, that generalist base gives you a much better uh, platform from which to specialise. And this is living proof why you need a co-host, because yes, we have spoken to Pete Nazchek, but that episode hasn't gone to air yet. <laughs> <laughs> so stand by for the, co for the conversation with Pete Nasjak into oh, the future. That's awesome. It's funny, I edited it last night. That's why it was fresh in my mind, but I forget we do time travel with, with the yeah. sequencing of this. Oh, we're back and yeah, forward yeah. and side Everyone's to side. Everyone's going, who's Pete Nasjak? <laughs> yeah, we haven't seen that episode. All will be revealed. <laughs> Probably next week. Um, look, the, the one key takeaway that Simon Eastor gave me that I think is really valuable is we asked what are the what are the habits of the truly elite, elite footballers? And he said that they just do the basics really well and they do the basics really consistently. Yeah, and I think, you know, we, we always said that within the SAS regiment and I remember someone asking me on a career course once, you know, how does the SAS do mission planning? Like there's some kind of real secret methodology that we're keeping to ourselves and, and only special forces do. Um, it does mission planning in exactly the same way that every other unit in the army does it, but it really tries to achieve virtuosity, which I've heard defined mm. as doing the the ordinary extraordinarily well. And yeah. yeah, I think that's 
kind of what what Simon was hitting on. Yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it? You know, it's it's the reps and sets principle. You know, the ten thousand hours. We've talked about that before. And when you think about how did you become a good shot, or perhaps not in the unit, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to pass on this. One. You know, it was thousands and thousands of rounds. But before you even put a round into the magazine and put that magazine on your weapon, you were DPing, dry practicing. How many times do you think you drew that pistol before mm. you actually fired a, ra- a round down range? Yeah, exactly. You were myelinating those pathways in your brain. But I think it is more than just that mindless repetition. It's what Mm. Ericsson called deliberate practice. So it is getting that volume, that 10,000 hours, but it's consciously focusing on specific areas, critiquing your performance, debriefing, reiterating, changing technique. It's not just mindlessly doing the same dumb thing over and over again. And I, I think that is exactly what we see in elite organisations across the spectrum. And thanks to Simon, we do hope that Fremantle Footy Club have a great season, just not quite as good as the West Coast Eagles. Admiral Lee Goddard, the pride of the fleet. The pride of the fleet is him. Uh, the former Academy Cadet Captain of the Australian Defence Force Academy. Mm-hmm. I was in the company of greatness, <laughs> open brackets, former greatness. Close brackets. <laughs> yeah, once, Two once. Academy Cadet Captains, oh, both yeah. you and Lee. He was my Academy Cadet Captain when I was a young first year cadet. It's funny looking back on how influential I think those senior cadets were. And when you, yeah. you look back, they were what? Maybe... 20-year-old kids with exactly two more years of quasi-military experience than you, but the good ones had really started to embody what it meant to be a, a military leader. Yeah, and I think, you know, we, we often come back to the lead by example principle. That principle is ingrained in us from leadership school at the Australian Defence Force Academy and the Royal Military College, and he did it. He led by example at age 20, and, you know, he was the cadet two years ahead of you that you really aspired to be like. I want my leadership style to be like him. Isn't it funny how you don't have to be super senior to draw inspiration from someone? Agreed. And speaking of inspiration, I loved that conversation about him drawing inspiration to join the Navy from that iconic Pride of the Fleet commercial. And it was good fun digging that back up on YouTube. Um, and look, it's it kind of hit home with me as well. Do you remember those old Army Reserve ads with the eighteen twelve overture, the yeah. guy whistling in the the field? And I mean, that's pretty inspirational stuff. I have a little problem with the current day military ads, particularly the Army ads. It yeah. doesn't matter whether you see them on the side of a bus shelter or on the television, my real problem with them is that there's no gun in sight. It's funny you say that because as I was driving to the studio this morning, I saw a gun on an army ad Ooh. and it stuck in my mind because I'm with you. It, it um, is the first time I've seen a weapon uh, in an army ad and, and 
a lot of them are, are kind of weird. Like there'll be pictures of the turrets of armoured fighting vehicles with no pintle-mounted machine gun, which yeah. is anathema. Um, but this one uh, said something like, you know, in my army, adventure is part of the job. And there was a dude with an actual rifle. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of people rappelling down without weapons, rappelling the, the, you know, out of places, not even in uniform. And not that I'm saying that violence is mandatory, uh, nor that kind of part of it. It's kind of an important component, potentially, yes, of your service in the military. The one I like is, um, and I think it's still uh, circulating, but a, a guy leaping off a, a Zodiac, a, a rubber boat, as yes. it breaches onto a, a foreign beach, you assume, and he's got no weapon. <laughs> I'm wondering what he's doing. I don't even know if he's wearing ta- tactical equipment. He's just going to the beach. <laughs> It's a good gig. Get paid for that too. Yeah, not bad. Um, um, sorry, but Lee, Lee, speaking Lee of beaches. did um, want to be cold and homesick and scared and ended up being the pride of the fleet. Ended up being the pride of the fleet and pretty much won every award in the fleet, not just the um, the Sword of Honour. Is that what it's called? At the sword Defence of Force Justice. <laughs> sword of Justice. Sword of Liberty. But then, he, but then he went to Naval College and won the Sword of Leadership there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think won the Senior Academic Award. Yep. And when he was CO of a ship, won HMAS the, Parramatta. The dog. Yes, the Duke of Gloucester Award for the best ship in the fleet. Which is, as we noted in the thing, quite literally the pride of the fleet. <laughs> so it's, and we remet Lee on the high seas in 2003 um, during the Pongsu operation. We talk a little bit about that. And he did say that our recollection, recollections weren't too tainted. Weren't too tainted, except I thought he was the navigator. <laughs> yeah, he was not. He was the executive officer. Mm-hmm. And he was far too kind when he said this uh, in a post on Instagram. Tim and Ben are universally highly regarded as accomplished and innovative Australian leaders, and their stories are true. (laughs) (laughs) I like how he had to put that last bit in because there's probably a lot of doubt (laughs) that our lame stories um, are based on, on fact. But no... Awesome to catch up with him. And look, obviously, you know, his track record speaks for itself. The work he's doing with Mindaroo now, they don't put um, uh, fools in those kind of roles. And, and Lee's really stepped up. But to boot, an absolute gentleman, really impressive guy. And he's now into Mindaroo Foundation working on some resilience initiatives. And we're really, really interested to see what the foundation will push out on their uh, resilient towns, resilient cities. Uh, program, the 50 most resilient and the 50 least resilient, some controversy no doubt to follow there, but maybe necessary to give us a start point to improve from. Yeah, and um, Lee reflected on the fact that they've got a great position in that they're they're not a a government-backed organisation. They can afford to um, speak truth to power in some cases in order to to try and promote the discussion and trying to promote change. And areas like um, uh, bushfire resilience, uh, it's, you know, from the, the science perspective, probably only going to get worse in terms of extreme weather events and our ability to deal with them. Lee was across here recently and, and I caught up with him for breakfast and it was it was really incredible to see how much he is committed to this. You know, he really has gone... 101% into Mindaroo, um, seeking to make a profound dis- uh, difference. Yep, we certainly look forward to tracking the good things he's going to do there.
on to Mark Billy Billingham. Yeah, what a cool chat. Yeah. We'd, um, in fact, it was quite funny because we, the night before recording that episode with Billy, had caught up with my brother, Dr. Dan Prong, mm-hmm. the average 70 kilo dickhead, um, who had just spent a couple of weeks with Billy uh, filming SAS Australia, the second season. Don't know if you can say that. Why? He's been posting it on his Instagram. Oh, okay, well, let's say it. If you want to say it, say it. I don't want to say it. You just did? We can edit. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, one of the interesting things, um, you know, talking about how small the world is, is that one of our team, Gareth, knows Billy really well. And when we were doing some verification validation on Billy ahead of the program, the one thing Gareth said is that he's a real, genuine, honest, authentic person who has done some incredible things in uniform. Yeah, and that certainly came across in the interview. Um, really cool chat. Um, fascinating upbringing and you pointed out during the conversation uh, echoes of um, Mark Donaldson Mm. and certainly echoes of Dan Kieran who we spoke to uh, a little while ago in terms of a a life that could have gone one way or another um, uh, at an early age and you know all three of those obviously ended up going through the military and doing incredible things as a result. Yeah exactly you know Billy leaves school at the age of 11 and if you saw him on the street at the age of 15 where he'd been stabbed, you'd mm. think this guy is destined to go to places that are no good. Um, and, and yeah, I think you're right. Definitely quite similar to that dispersion point that Dan Kieran found, you know, this sort of location where the decision's pretty binary that Mark Donaldson also found. And, you know, they've found, all three of them in many ways found um, comfort inside the purpose that was provided to them inside a a military unit. Do you reflect on your own life and think you've grown up in a bubble? I mean, we we spoke with Billy who got stabbed at 15. We spoke with Dan who saw his dad gut shot at about age nine. Mm. And we spoke with Monjor Jeeva who at about the same age was in a gunfight in a Bulgarian nightclub. (laughs) And he was in a nightclub. What were we doing? (laughs) (laughs) I was just playing cricket in the backyard, I think. Oh, yeah, lame. But your really great um, conversation with Billy. We talk also about his book and his speaking tour. Um, and, of course, SAS Australia soon to appear on the television screens of Australia. Mm. And we ask him the question, how close is the show to SAS selection? Yeah. And he gives us his honest insights there. Yeah, and, and I thought that was a really cool um, part of the conversation. And the, the fact that he said, well, look, it's still... You know, it's real in the sense that it's looking for those same characteristics, that you're still after that person who can keep going when the chips are down. But, of course, it's a different medium, it's a different format, it's a different level of preparation, it's a different demographic of recruit, um, and so there are necessarily some differences. One of the things that sounds really cool on his resume is his time as a bodyguard, where he looked after a whole heap of different people, including Russell Crowe and Tom Cruise, Kate Moss, but spent a lot of time with Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. He talks about that in some detail and the need to balance the personal from the professional when you're living with someone 24 hours, seven days a week. Yeah, to be super tough and and not dissimilar to what the conversation we have with David Knopf um, on in terms of how do you mm. sort of when you're so intertwined and and so um, uh, close from a, a physical sense, how do you you sort of keep those those lines in the sand? 
I, I also I um, was really interested in asking him about you know it looks glitzy and glamorous you know private jets and flying to movie openings and doing red carpets and and all this sort of thing but um, would you trade places and without a, a moment of hesitation Billy said no way that the A-list life is is pretty tough and and you're on camera the whole time you're under scrutiny the whole time and he, he mentioned which I found really interesting that it was all about time management mm. about sort of um, breaking down your life into these little chunks so you can fit it, fit everything in. You also asked him about being persona non grata could you explain being PNG and what that is in the UK? Yeah well it's basically um, the, the unit saying you're no longer welcome back as uh, sort of an official member you can't go onto base and, and you, you can't be members of the, the associations and the, the alumni sort of organisations and it's a pretty big thing um, and there's a lot of controversy different organisations do it differently the Navy SEALs really have a strong approach to, to people who claim they used to be SEALs or people who were SEALs um, doing things that might call the unit into disrepute um, and so it's, it is something that I think uh, most ex special operations members contend with and certainly something we've thought about in terms yeah. of you know you're doing a show like this which we hope is, is bringing some of the lessons and what we think um, is uh, the beneficial aspects that other people can uh, can learn from from military service but you don't want to cross that line. I think even the awareness of it just making sure that it is in balance is important you know we we also walk this interesting line between our former lives and our current lives and billy talks to that that you know how you're trying to make a living outside of the outside of uniform you know the military's not paying you anymore how do you get that balance right yeah and and you know what are those red lines and billy certainly reflected on things like the operational security aspects and and certain details about tactics techniques and procedures are, are something that um, you'd, you'd never cross and, and in many ways are immaterial to the, the real valuable lessons, which I, I think we covered a lot of uh, during our conversation. Good chat. Go and check that one out. Meanwhile, he's tripping out, so she takes a car. So, Ben, in 2002, just post 9-11, you were in Afghanistan for your first tour. And recently, we've just seen the announcements in the US and now in Australia of the withdrawal from Afghanistan in the year 2021, with the benefit of nearly two decades of operational experience, operational service, and with 41 killed and I think several hundred injured in Afghanistan. What have we got to show for it? What are your reflections? I think, I mean, through that trajectory of my own personal experience with Afghanistan, um, it became quite clear that, you know, whatever romanticised notions about sort of king and country, um, you, you might think about a military deployment, there's a lot of things that go in the background and a lot of decisions and a lot of uh, concepts that drive the decision to use uh, the military instrument of government that aren't always linked to things like defence of the homeland or an existential threat. And so it became pretty clear that um, the decision to, to use us in Afghanistan was probably more a political than a security one. Mm. Um, and I found it personally quite... 
confusing at some stages where we had a narrative about, you know, stopping it being a safe haven for transnational terrorism or mm. building a federated parliamentary system or getting girls to school or reconstructing a province. And yet, you know, it seemed like that the ultimate aim was was more political and, a, and about um, sort of reinforcing an alliance with a, a major coalition partner. Having said all that, I think it still reinforces the fact that the military is a tool of government and we have a democratically elected government. It is on them to make a decision about how they employ that. Um, and so I, I think that is part and parcel of what you are doing in a volunteer army in a, in a country like ours. Um, what I do find a little disillusioning um, in light of the, particularly the Brereton report, where we're seeing, uh, I think, some of the, uh, you know, results of a, a decade mm. of uh, exposure for a very small group of people to a very complex and ambiguous um, and violent uh, military environment, um, and the. I guess, decision to, to sort of uh, hold culpability at the lowest levels. And I feel a bit of a lack of um, acceptance at the all the way down from those strategic levels that, mm. you know, our decisions to, to commit to this environment, to use this tool of government in this manner, have had consequences um, down at the tactical level. Yeah, agree. And I wonder how much we didn't read military history and didn't sort of, you know, fully, fully analyse the the defeats and the less successful campaigns of Alexander the Great, mm. Genghis Khan, the first Anglo-Afghan war, the second Anglo-Afghan war, the Russians. Yeah. And we do know it's an easy place to get into and a very difficult place to get out of Afghanistan. I've been reflecting a lot on that. And I reckon you can, there's a lot to be said for vicarious experience. And there's a lot to be said for learning the, the lessons of others. And, you know, the these sound bites, again, I'm, I'm coming back to the Brereton report, I oh, will never let this happen again. I don't know. Mm. These sort of things have kind of happened every single time. Humankind has kind of had to learn the hard way every single time. I'm wondering if there's not an element that, you know, we don't learn and maybe it's part of the human condition that we uh, convince ourselves that the, the nuance of this situation is sufficiently different that you know, we're not just going to make the same mistake and it's only with the benefit of hindsight that we, we actually recognise that we've just relearnt that same old lesson each time. Yeah, there comes a time when rough people must fight and unfortunately on some of these battlefields the opposition doesn't play by Queensbury rules. It's not, you know, you move your chess piece, I mm. move mine. It is dirty, it is granular and we're not using that in any way to excuse behaviours but you've often talked about this trajectory of purpose and how that gets lost in two decades of service. I think also there's a bit more Swiss cheese. I, I have a real issue. We've talked about this before, about the constitutional lawyer, Jürger, um, the meeting of Afghan seniors in 2004, when in the very front row of that constitutional lawyer, Jürger, was the Western embassies. Mm. There's something fundamentally broken when Afghan leadership aren't in the front row but rather the West is in the front rows. And, and I think also the democratic structure that we put Afghanistan into was never going to work considering the great ethnic divides in the country. It was very Western. Um, it was highly inclusive, but I just wonder when we pull you know, our finger out of stirring this, this sort of muddy water, how it's going to work. Is it going to go back to the way that it was 
I mean, metaphorically, but nearly literally 3,000 years ago, mm. back to this quite nearly feudal, tribal, ethnic-based reality. David Knopf. David Knopf is back in Australia after a fire on the ship coming back from Antarctica that he described as being incredibly traumatic. I did reach out to him. He he birthed in uh, Fremantle just for a night. Unfortunately, we, we missed each other, as you know. And then on he went back to Tasmania and into um, Melbourne. And he penned us a note saying, Hey, fellas. I've been wandering around enjoying the fresh air and greenery, been to the beach, enjoying seeing family and friends as well as their dogs. <laughs> Didn't think about that. No, no dogs in Antarctica. My incredible Hulk voice was a hit with my nieces, although they were expecting a penguin. <laughs> I miss the simplicity of life down there, meaning Antarctica, uh, and looking forward to catching up. Oh, that's awesome. And look, what a, what a tough run. I mean, his initial um, uh, deployment, his time on the ice, uh, got extended due to, to COVID. And mm. then he sort of ends up with a, a fire in the, the ship on the way home. Um, it is a, a very well-deserved uh, sort of homecoming that he, he's finally got. And it's great to hear from David that it's, it's, um, it's going well. Now, we recently spoke at a TACMID Resilience virtual conference. Open brackets, full disclosure, I pulled out at the last minute, so you did it by yourself, close brackets. What did you talk about on that resilience virtual workshop? Well, resilience. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, the best of, the yeah. best of Benny. That's <laughs> kind of what it said on the tin, Tim. Um, we spoke about the Resilience Shield, so our model for resilience and um, how it can be applied in daily life, the different aspects that make up resilience and, and how we can improve those. And in fact, um, it, was a, it was a great conversation, some really interesting questions. And, you know, for people in that line of work, a lot of uh, medical first responders, um, gee, we, we talk about PTSD and exposure to trauma from a battlefield perspective, and, and obviously that's significant. But my goodness, the, the people pulling kids out of car wrecks on the, mm. the daily basis mm. um, absolutely deserve our respect. And then on top of that, the pressures that COVID is placing on medical personnel around the world, thankfully not so much in Australia, but it was a global audience for the, the TACMED Summit. Um, some some really, um, I think, timely discussion on these ideas of individual resilience. And and then leadership teamwork resilience for a pastoral client of ours, yeah. not religion. And this time I did join you yeah, for, yeah. for a few days. Yeah, you rocked up day, when there was, was beers on offer. Um, you were there with bells on. And Look, dogs. Beers and dogs. Um, yeah, the Hunterways and Kelpies, fantastic to be on these you know, farms with animals. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> 
dogs and sheep and cattle. Farms with animals. <laughs> well, some farms don't have animals. Okay. Um, these farms did, and it was awesome. Fantastic client, like amazing group of human beings. And um, we joke that every time we, we have interactions with them, we probably learn more about leadership than, yeah, than they definitely. learn from us. But, but hopefully we were able to pass something back. But we spoke earlier about that intimacy of leadership in contexts like being a bodyguard, mm. in contexts like David Knopf being uh, the leader of the station down in Antarctica. But my goodness, the the agriculture environment absolutely lives and breathes that, don't they? You know, the, the families are on the, the workplace. They can never escape the workplace. It yeah. is really close-knit, um, which brings great opportunities, but also pretty unique challenges in terms of uh, leadership and, and management. And just general resilience. You're out there by yourself. You don't have too many professional colleagues to confide in. Your social network is very limited. Um, they talk about the importance of the dog as you know, an element of your resilience. That is what you're interacting with regular, uh, on regular times mm. um, per day, regularly. And well and truly on the forefront. I mean, since we've been working with these folk, uh, quite literally, fire, flood. Yeah. Little bit of pestilence and mouse <laughs> plague when we when we arrived, but but they're dealing with some, some real biblical level hardships and, and doing it amazingly. Yeah. Mark Wales' books, Inching Closer. He's going to join us back in the studio this month, we hope. And he better bring some better rum than he brought before. Yeah, no, it's always awesome to catch up with, with Mark. This will be, what, third time? Try second. Second? Mm-hmm. We, we character assassinated him during the zombie apocalypse episode. That might be what I'm thinking of as well. He got right of refusal, though. Yeah, yeah, fumbled it. Um, <laughs> no, this will be great. And if you haven't yet, um, check out his book, um, Survivor. Survivor, which is, um, I was just, it's pre order now? Yes, yeah, I think he must be really close to bookshelves, yep. but it is definitely pre order. Yeah, and um, obviously the cover reveals out there cracking photo of him throwing a bit of blue steel downrange. Mm. Warming the cockles of an old vehicle mounted troop commander's heart on the spine is a long-range patrol vehicle. <laughs> Very cool. But, yeah, um, it, that is an awesome read. We were privileged enough to, to get advanced reading copies of that, and we've reflected before that it's it's not just um, tales of daring do and, and there mm. I was knee-deep in grenade pins in a pit in Afghanistan. It is a lot of sort of self-deprecation, a lot of humour, a lot about his journey before and after his time in service, but a really reflective um, book in in a lot of aspects. Yeah, agree. Margaret direct messaged us on Instagram about James's getting away with it, and she said that her partner Rob said he wanted to learn the song on his guitar, but he didn't know how to play it at all. Um, that said, it was a special song for him and his mates, and he had very fond memories in uniform and also very sad memories from his time in uniform. Uh, he introduced Margaret to the podcast where she heard Monica Georgieva and was inspired by her, and Margaret taught Rob some chords, and he practised, she says, every day to learn the song with the intention to play it for some of his crew on Anzac Day with his new mini Taylor guitar. 
Um, needless to say, they were disappointed with Anzac Day mm. being changed, modified, and in some locations cancelled. But they did get up and hold a driveway service, and he played the song. So she sent us a 60-second snippet of um, the two of them playing together. She says, thank you for the inspiration, but also um, she wanted to show the people who know the song how much um, you know, that's important, but also how much the podcast help those who listen to it and inspire old diggers like Rob. That's awesome. There's something about that tune. We've reflected on it before, but it's funny how often it crops up. Um, clearly, it was important to us in the unit for a period of time. Um, but yeah, we've I've spoken with British people, um, British military veterans who out of the blue have mentioned that that was a really special, poignant song for them. Obviously, Margaret's reflections there. Um, yeah, it, it's an absolutely cracking tune. Ozzy Cozzy, a couple of interactions with Ozzy Cozzy, um, again on Instagram. He said that he's referenced us a few times in his MBA and wasn't expecting to see you pop up on an AGSM video. <laughs> I wonder how many likes you get for, for reposting a picture of me on Instagram. <laughs> Not many, but what I did say is that we're everywhere a bit like an annoying rash. Um, He then uh, made another post. He's got his results back and he said, fuck yeah, unit one of my MBA is done. As we said recently, 49% is a waste of time and 51% is a waste of effort. Yeah, see, I I draw objection to that because you said that (laughs) and I would have probably said, as we spoke with Mark Billy Billingham, that always a little further. That was the ADFA. Never settle. If you were studying a Bachelor of Arts at ADFA, that was that was pretty much the, the which, mantra. Which I was, and yeah. we've spoken about my double black jibber status. Any more than 51% was a waste of effort in those days. Now, I, uh, we did respond saying, whilst we would encourage everyone to strive for superiority, and of course, always go a little further, we did say 49%, 51%. But don't aspire to that. You can do better. Tim said that. (laughs) (laughs) Very sad news about uh, General Jim Molan, who has been recently diagnosed with an aggressive form of cancer. He's crossed the line of departure on that, fighting that battle. Uh, We've sent our best wishes to Jim, um, and we do hope that he comes through it with his health intact, if not improved. Mm. No, and certainly if you haven't heard our conversation with Jim Molan, uh, check that out. Really, um, I, I found a really enlightening conversation, and, and just that that warrior spirit. You know, he's sort of stood up for what he's believed in. He's he's fought for his principles all his life, and I'm sure this battle with cancer is going to be no different. I was fascinated by a note that we got sent from an organisation called Listen Notes. I hadn't heard of them before. But we are ranked in the top 1.5% of most popular shows out of 2,165,545 podcast shows globally as ranked by Listen Score, which is a popularity score, not a popularity contest. And so uh, 
I was reveling that a little bit. And then uh, we got a note from Adam who said, is it like Jetstar, the world's number one air- airline, is voted by Jetstar? <laughs> <laughs> Quite possibly. And I'm, I'm super interested in whatever metrics puts us in the top 1% of anything. Yeah. But um, I can categorically say that it wasn't voted by me. I mm. do not know how to operate most social media. I've never heard of Listen Live, Live Listen in, what was the platform? Listen Notes. Listen Notes. Our new best friends. Have you been donkey voting? Have you been? I have not. I have not had the robot just clicking <laughs> best, my favorite, please, yep, rank it up. Um, although, interestingly, you know, when you do get a podcast, you get these odd mail outs from all of these different organizations like that. And mm. another one, Chartable, sends us a weekly summary which we don't subscribe to. But I did note that this morning, mm. we've been really big in Malaysia. Right. Selamat pagi, termakasi. Ah, pagi pagi. Um, that's good. Yeah. If you are listening to us in Malaysia, drop us a line. Super keen to hear about life in Malaysia because they've also had their struggles um, from a COVID-19 perspective. Yeah. And in fact, anywhere in the world, um, the lines are always open. Debrief at Unforgiving 60. We do our very best to uh, get back to people. We've had some great suggestions for guests come through that um, and some, some really pleasing feedback. And it look, it means a lot to us. Um, yeah. We're sort of sitting in this little studio pumping stuff out and we're hoping it's resonating. And, and when we hear that, that people... Um, uh, you know, get inspired or, or find something meaningful or even just vaguely amusing in the stuff we're doing. It's really great to hear. Yep. And we're also on Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn um, and Twitter and TikTok. <laughs> this is news to, to me. <laughs> Tim, Tim is our social media department. Um, yeah. So feel free also to reach out on any of those platforms. Uh, note, we do not man the TikTok account. Do not know TikTok. What is TikTok? Have never TikToked. Um, and we would also love your challenges. If you agree, disagree, um, violently disagree, then please let us know. Mm. And so what's coming up, Tim? Well, we've just been through Anzac Day 2021, which was a bit peculiar for us in Perth because mm. it was So that's not, not coming up. <laughs> no, I didn't want to. I mean, you're looking forward. I haven't even finished looking. <laughs> right, right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, um, Anzac Day. Yeah. Sad, actually. I mean, you, you know, I'm on the board of RSL Western Australia mm-hmm. and uh, it, the amount of effort that the RSL had put into organising Anzac Day services, uh, dawn service, an 11am commemoration, the march, of course, in the morning. And then the afters, you know, we uh, RSL had closed off a street in Perth, which would have been incredible for a you know, street get-together. And then the showcase, the new um, Anzac house mm. um, on St George's Terrace here in Perth, which we were going to open um, all well, three function levels for lunches. So real sad um, uh, opportunity for RSL 
um, opportunity missed, mm. but also for, for all the veterans in Perth. Um, but tremendously, at least in other parts of Australia and the world, we got to see Anzac Day as it should be, um, surrounded by friends, former colleagues and family. Mm. Although I must admit, I don't mind the driveway vigil. I've, I've really enjoyed that the last couple of years. I dislike people <laughs> in general, <laughs> you, you in particular. <laughs> um, but I, I've found it a really personal and solemn way, uh, you know, strip back all the pomp, all that sort of stuff. It's just this awesome little opportunity to reflect uh, for me on a very personal level. But also I love just seeing my kids and the kids in our street sort of lined up and down and and. It's it, like I keep saying, it, it feels a lot more personal to me than the, the formal ceremonies, and there's something really nice about that. Yeah, we did a driveway service, although I'm glad no regimental sergeant majors were close by because I would have got extra duties. We were late. I couldn't get the, I couldn't get the service playing. I had polished my UGG boots. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so you were up there in UGG boots. Yeah. <laughs> At least I got dressed up and put medals on. Uh, no, I, I, I got a coffee. And I had the, um, the RSL bin sticker on the red top bin. Well played. Yep, and some candles. Hmm. But yeah, no prizes for my um, for my efforts in coordinating a service. It was it was a bit shabby. But I agree. Yeah, it was good. Great to look up and down the street and hmm. see people there. At least you know pre dawn, casting a memory. Yeah, awesome. Cool. So now looking forward, um, we're about to meet with Dr. Lise Notabart yes. uh, to talk about the um, results from the initial tranche of our resilience survey. So that's the body of research we've been doing accompanying the book, and it's anchored if you have participated in it. Thank you very much. We've had uh, about 1,800 respondents, which has provided an enormous body of data for, for Lise uh, to crunch, and she's done just that, and some really interesting preliminary results starting to come in. Yeah, we threw the challenge down there saying, please break the model. I mean, here's our concept on resilience. Here's how it's founded. And did she come back and say, your model doesn't suck? That, yeah, that was almost <laughs> her exact words. Um, I met with her a couple of weeks ago when she was drawing these, these threads together. And I feared the worst. You know, these three Luddites have come up with this concept. And I figured that um, it would not stand, survive mm. first contact with the, the academic enemy. But she said almost exactly that in a much more polite way. Your model doesn't suck. Um, and in fact, there's, there's some really strong correlations uh, across the board. But some super interesting things to come out of it. The first one is um, we had structured a number of the, the surveys. They were all based on peer-reviewed existing surveys. So we knew that the screens actually worked, but it was for us about how they worked together and how the different components of resilience knitted together. Um, Lee drew our attention to the fact that uh, resilience, um, increasing resilience is about not only building up your resilience, your defences, mm. but also reducing your vulnerabilities. And I, I like think that. I'd always thought that they were just a yin and a yang. If you yeah. build up your defences, you reduce your vulnerabilities. Naturally, yeah. But the statistics have highlighted the fact that these are two very different complementary but different uh, facets, which I reckon is really cool. Yeah, and the layers of the shield. And we're going to get Lise on the show and we can talk in more detail mm. about this, but some of the layers contribute to resilience and some of the layers contribute more to reducing vulnerability. Yeah, exactly. So the particularly the body layer, our sleep, diet and exercise helps to build your resilience. So it builds up your defences. 
and the the MVP for the body layer is sleep. Mm. So that that really moves the needle. Your ability to get that seven to eight hours sleep a night is what's really um, contributing the most statistically um, in terms of the body layer and your professional layer as well. So your occupational self-efficacy, um, how you feel in terms about your job having purpose and your ability to do it well, that helps build up your resilience, your dispositional resilience, and what helps reduce your vulnerability. Mm, being consciously competent or unconsciously competent. Both of those things. But the the real thing that moves the needle is your social layer. So um, I'm not big on having friends, as we've just discussed, but apparently that's a thing in terms of reducing vulnerability. I've talked about it before and it's in the book. We'll, we'll come back to it, no doubt. But uh, yeah, this social network that I never thought... I mean, never consciously gave real thought to how important it was to resilience has proven itself in my life to be incredibly important mm. until that story a little bit later on. Yeah, and I think that's where that distinction between building up your defences and reducing your vulnerability and, and the, the social layer, and in particular your relationship with friends as opposed to family, yes. um, is the thing that really helps reduce your vulnerability, which anecdotally kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Mm. You know? Well, Napoleon Hill in Think and Grow Rich talks about the mastermind group, you know, this group of friends or close colleagues or advisors that are assisting you navigate your paths in life. And he says that it should exclude family because family have preconceived ideas of who you are and what you can do and certainly what you can't do. Mm. And so if you are seeking a stretch target, they're likely to say, well, oh, look, you know, you've never done that before. I don't think that's a good fit. Mm. Um, whereas friends, colleagues and other advisors are more likely to say, you go, give it yeah. a red hot crack. The old saying, you can choose your friends, you can't choose your family. It might, might have some, some resonance you, in the resilience side. But, but some also really interesting statistical stuff. Um, the way we'd structured the survey, the mind layer mapped too well onto resilience from a statistics a statistics point of view. So we're going to look at making some modifications to the way we collect the data, but I think it reinforces that fact that I think we anecdotally knew that the mind is where it's all about. And, and we look at the components of resilience, but then you look at examples like Nelson Mandela, James Bond Stockdale, an American fighter pilot shot down in uh, North Vietnam. They didn't have any you know, they weren't optimised for sleep, diet and exercise. They had no social contact, very little professional fulfilment, but it was their mind that kept them going. And, and certainly that's what the stats are telling us. But a super interesting facet, um, I personally had thought that having a growth mindset, Carol Dweck's work on on um, having a, a mindset that views failure as an opportunity to grow rather yep. than a black mark against your name, um, I thought in my personal sense, that was a, a really big thing in resilience, but survey says no. Well, we're not saying it's not important. Yeah. We're just saying it's not a driving factor to build resilience, mm -hmm. or at least leases and the statistics are telling her that. Yeah, it's not moving the needle as much as um, other facets such as mindfulness, which I think resonates. Um, yeah. Most listeners are probably sick of hearing Tim and I bang on about the, the benefits of mindfulness and meditation from our own personal perspectives, but uh, good to see that's the statistics are backing that up. Yeah, I just told you the story of how I felt over the last seven days really clouded, like I'd had eight espresso shots and so many thoughts and I couldn't quite order them. And I had a couple of incredible meditation sessions that were, you know, quite transformational and came out of that incredibly lucid and had clarity that I just didn't have for a week. 
Good. Well, I look forward to hearing good things from you in our planning session that we're doing in about half an hour for work. No, not going. I'm taking the rest of the day off. (laughs) (laughs) Everything is relative. Well, that's about it for the RV. Um, Thank you for your continued listenership. Um, We do have some good episodes lined up. As I gave a a spoiler alert, we're we're talking with an ex-colleague of ours, a guy called Pete Nazchek, in a couple of weeks. Um, And... And that's about it, except you can find out more about this show at www.unforgiving60.com. And if you did want to do the resilience survey, that is open, it is free, it is confidential, and you'll find a link to that at www.resilienceshield.com. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for coming. Bye. Businessmen, politicians, gather around and meet my friends. Folk come here tonight to listen in to you justify your sins. Well, you smoke too much, you drink too much, you're blind.
to the debrief. We try to go always a little further in this podcast and greatly appreciate your input. Please let us know your feedback, the good, the bad, or the ugly. Also, if you know someone who is living a life less ordinary, we'd love to hear about them. You can get in touch at debrief at unforgiving60.com. That's debrief at unforgiving60.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends and write a review for us on Apple Podcasts. Until next episode, keep filling your unforgiving minutes with 60 seconds worth of distance run. See you next time on the Unforgiving 60. Bedroom.